What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And as you know, I like to introduce you to artists whose work you've enjoyed and admired, but whose names you don't know. You know, not great uh, clickbait material, but uh, still it's worth it uh, for you guys to be introduced to some really interesting people who's under your radar. Anyway, this week and next, you are going to meet a singer. Now, you have heard her a thousand times on Sinatra songs, uh, on hit songs, uh, in movies, TV shows, on commercials. You've seen her in variety shows when there were variety shows. Uh, The Oscars. She has been the choral director of the Oscars for 20 years. Well, her name is Sally Stevens, and she is what's known as a session singer. She's like, you know, the Wrecking Crew, you know, all those great musicians who played on all of those hit records. Well, she's one of the backup singers, sort of the equivalent of the Wrecking Crew. Anyway, it is a very specialized field which you will learn about, and she has a new book out called I Sang That. So she is my guest this week and next. And oh, just to give you a preview Here is something that she sings on that uh, you may have heard of. So, Sally, did you originally want to be a headliner as opposed to a session singer? Well, I don't know whether the headline part of it was the motivating force, but I did. I always loved writing songs. It started in high school and I wrote songs and played them for my friend, drove her crazy. <clears throat> and um and and that was the direction I wanted to go as a as an artist primarily in the beginning but I got into the session singing world and realized what a blessing that was and and also it, it was a busy busy time in those early days and if you didn't show up they might find someone they liked better and you'd lose your place so that really did become my focus and and along the way I've had a few special little bucket list events where I've been able to write a lyric for film or recording or, um, you know, I've, I've touched on that early yearning to, to write songs, which has been great. Do you ever like want to do a, a one night thing 
you know, <laughs> at Patello's well, or somewhere. Well, as a matter of fact, I have an evening scheduled at Patello's coming up. <laughs> um, March 7th, they're, they're, we're kind of holding that date. But I did that uh, back again around 80, 1980, for a couple of years. I would do weekends at... Uh, at the room upstairs at a restaurant called Look, I think it was Look Cafe on Ventura Boulevard. And yeah, they're always upstairs. Yes, those, those places are always upstairs <laughs> yes. or in the basement. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and that was fun. I did mostly my own songs and and a few, you know, just that I loved of other people's. And um, I did actually uh, for my 60th birthday, I gave myself three gifts, and one of them was to do a cabaret symposium back in New York which um, I thought would embolden me a bit about live performances, but I haven't done a lot of them. In In April of 2019, I was asked to do a couple of songs for a, a tribute for uh, Lalo Schifrin up at Vibrato. And I did, and that was, that was, it was scared to death, but it turned out that once I got on stage, it was just fun and it went well. And, um, and a, a, the, the wonderful, French pianist and film composer Jean-Michel Bernard had the little on, uh, instrumental ensemble that was playing. And he said, we've got to go into the studio. So we did go into Capitol Records and worked with Al Schmidt. And I did seven vocals from of songs from other films. And then he put that together with some instrumental tracks that he had done. And he got us a release on Lakeshore Records. But that was the last live uh, live performance that I did. You ever go to karaoke bars and uh, and just go, okay, all right, I'm just going to blow these people away here. <laughs> you know, I never have done that, and I've always thought it was just because I was a big chicken. But that would be fun. I'd like yeah, to. Yeah, just just go there, and um, I'm going to do uh, "Don't Rain on My Parade." <laughs> people go, what? <laughs> Everyone's doing Margaritaville. <laughs> And you're doing that as a, as a session singer, you sing on movies, TV shows, variety shows, when there were variety shows, live Mm -hmm. concerts, jingles, commercials, demos, touring. You have to be very versatile. You have to be able to sing in a lot of different styles, don't you? Yes, that that's one of the um, that's one of the things that session singers are kind of known for um, to a degree. There are those that specialize in certain areas, you know, but it's, it, you do have to be a little adaptable style wise. And uh, the sad thing about that, I mean, it's great. (laughs) If you could do that, you'd become a very busy singer. The, The sad thing in back in past years, and it may not be so true today, but I think producers looked at session singers as, oh, those are the technology technicians of the business they don't have any identity or they don't have any personality or soul or whatever and that was not always true there were there were wonderful solo singers among uh, the session singing community that just didn't have a chance to do that very often mm-hmm. yeah i think of darlene love and that that movie yeah. the 30 feet from stardom yeah i believe it was 20 feet but that's okay well you know with inflation it's now 30 so describe describe a session what is a typical session like for you well uh, it depends on what the uh, product is to be if it i haven't done a lot of commercials for quite a while but in those back in those days you go in and and you'd sing the little jingle and it was usually done as a demo and um in there was a place called bell sound in hollywood as a little small studio i don't know if it's still there and um, 
trying to think of the gentleman who was the producer of all those commercials and Ron Hicklin was the vocal contractor. But there would always be a group from the agency sitting in the booth and and Don, uh, I think that was his name, would would have a very expensive bottle or two of wine to share with them after the session. That seemed to be the focus of their attention, waiting for those bottles to open. Um, if you if we were doing a record session, if I can, uh, and er- everything in those days was more done all at once. You'd walk into Studio A or Studio B at United, and the the instrumentalists, the band, the wrecking crew guys would be there. We would be in our vocal booth. The solo, the artist would be in their vocal booth, and I I remember one night when Frank Sinatra was doing some vocals. He just had started to see Mia Farrow, and they came in together. And as it, always, he did like two tra- two takes and left. He didn't listen to playbacks. He just is that okay, guys? Okay. And then, <laughs> really, because uh, you know, there's that CBS documentary about um, him. I've you know never when when he was recording. Um, it was a very good year, uh, and you know he's giving instructions about uh, what bar to come in on and and he's listening back and and all like that. And it makes it seem like he's, you know, just so uh, concerned about every moment. And, And I watched it and I thought to myself, well, I've heard these stories about him doing movies and it was just, as you mentioned, one or two takes and I'm out of here, guys. You know <laughs> that maybe maybe he did uh, more of that attention paying because he knew there was the documentary going exactly on. exactly yeah. yeah but it, generally speaking and, and and I mean he he's still my the god of male vocals to me except for James Taylor um, there's nobody like him but and he really was great that's all he needed to do was go in and sing it a couple times and go home. From what I understand, he was very respectful of the musicians and everybody that uh, when he did a session, it was usually very pleasant. Yeah, yeah, it was. And and everybody had such respect for him, too. Um, And then about the film scoring sessions, that's uh, again used to in the older days. It was done all in in one group on a big scoring stage that the musicians would be there the conductor would be at the podium the singers would be off to the side in the choral um uh, risers and and everything would be recorded at once then it began to happen more frequently that the everything the orchestral stuff was done but the singers would be brought in after that because there might not be vocal cues on all the cues and then um now it's it, it's it's often done in layers you know the the horns will do their thing and the and especially during the pandemic that had to happen because there was such restrictions on spacing and all sure and of course in the early days in the 50s 60s and 70s you didn't have 95 track that's right (laughs) capability so uh you had to do that although it seems like you have a full orchestra and you have a big chorus and and one guy makes a mistake, mm-hmm. and you all got to go back and do it again. Yes, I remember doing the vocals for um, Clute, and it was I was doing solo vocals in the vocal booth at uh, on Paramount, I think. I can't. But the the it was scary because if I made a mistake, the whole orchestra had to start over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, that that doesn't happen so often. That's very memorable, by the way. Your your solo in Clute, 
and and how it was used uh, is really one of the more memorable moments of music Mm -hmm. and how music can certainly enhance a creepy scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how nice. I'm, I'm happy to know that. That was one of my favorite projects. And I, uh, it was just, it was just fun. Michael Small was the composer and he, he passed away very early in his career. Uh, I did a lot more of those kind of solo vocal things for Lalo Schifrin along the way too. But, uh, but you were asking, I think, uh, how the singers work. And, and in all of those situations, procession singers, we walk in, our music is on the music stand, and we read it, and that's it. it You've and, never seen it before, so you just have to sight read and do it. Absolutely, and especially on the film stuff, because the musicians are at that level. They they sight read something and go unless there's something the composer needs to tweak or change. It's a, it's a few times through, and that, and that's a, a, a that's a wrap. So the sight reading is a really important part of the session singer. Uh, tools that we have to have and being a good musician being able to sing with a straight tone or add vibrato if you need it or or darken your tone or um you know and and everybody has preferences in terms of sound when i when i began to contract vocals which i didn't do until i'd been singing for others for 20 years or so because i thought it was very political i didn't want to do it um some of the the vocals that i preferred i i I'm going to share something which I don't share very often, so the whole world will know it now. But I never particularly liked choral singing as a singer, hmm. because, because in, in unless I put the soprano section together, I, I don't have a big voice. Um, so if there's a pitch problem, I can't really help by singing louder, you know. And 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 if the voices aren't blending, it it's just I, I'm not happy. But if it's a beautiful blended choral sound, then it's a joy to be a part of. And there were some vocals that stand out in my mind as being that. And one of the first ones was the uh, Edward Scissorhands vocals for for Danny Elfman. The, I loved that that light floaty soprano sound that we got. And then we did some lovely similar cues for James Newton Howard for Peter Pan. Some of the. Uh, uh, lighter cues and, and the and the wonderful big choral cues are fun too and I love it when they come together but but um it it's if you're singing with a choir that just doesn't sound like you wish it would sound it's it's not so much fun it's happy to be there and happy to get the check but <laughs> if somebody hits a wrong note or even goes sharp on a note mm-hmm. can you tell when you're singing, there's there's like eight people, and one person is off. Can you tell who's off? Usually, yes, yeah, yeah, and and um, um, and fortunately, that doesn't happen very often with the level of performers that I'm used to working with. But once in a while, somebody's struggling or can't find a note or or it's just they're, they're just a little under the pitch, you know, and we just have to say, just lift it up, raise your eyebrows. Well, it's uh, quite a skill. I, a number of years ago, for fun, took singing lessons, took a singing class with one of your colleagues, Darlene Koldenhoven. Oh, yeah. Huh. And there were like eight or nine of us in the class. 
And Darlene is also a session singer and sings a lot of jingles and things. And, um, and for one week, she wanted to teach us about harmony and singing together as a group. Uh So she took a jingle, a simple, like three second KRTH Los Angeles. Uh And she assigned us our parts Uh and we worked on the harmony. And then we all got together to sing this two second jingle. (laughs) And it took like 40 minutes Wow. Until we all got it right and we cut off exactly right on each note. And I watch you guys and you just like do it in like one or two takes. <laughs> it's like phenomenal. By the way, don't judge that I took a singing class, people. Oh, okay. <laughs> Darlene is wonderful. She's a, I, I, in fact, I just was at her home a, a few weeks ago. She released a a CD of, of what she does, which is that meditative, wonderful music. But this time she added unusual instruments. She had, uh, I, I can't tell you what they are because I, I'm not familiar with them. But just, that unusual? Yeah, beautiful sound, <laughs> yes. You and also it, worked on variety shows yes. in, the, in the early days. And you were on camera. You were like part of the on-camera uh, yeah. vocal group. Now, you worked for a few years with Danny Kay. Yes. Now I got to ask you because you were you were actually very charitable in your book talking about Danny Kay. Danny Kay is reputed to be the most hated man in Hollywood. The man who who is just the most despicable human being to to, to everyone he came across. And and you said he he was fine um but but I'm his, I'm guessing he was fine to you selectively. <laughs> no, he, he had his moments. I I think you know I, I I knew Harvey Corman quite well, and I I know that Harvey had his ups and downs with Danny, and um and I heard a story once about Danny. Th- th- Danny was seeing a psychiatrist, a psychologist, psychiatrist or psychologist, who once in a while would accompany him to events, and he always wore a cape, and he would throw it over his shoulder and get into the limousine you know, or whatever. But um, I, 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 I haven't heard those horrible stories about Danny. I do know that he was very egocentric. And I think that you, if you, you remember perhaps that I wrote about one day that after the show, he was meeting with some people who had come, some fans or friends or something. And, and they were talking about other music projects he'd done because they knew he had conducted for this, uh, 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 to raise money for a children's charity and and the gentleman asked Danny if he could if he could play the cello. And Danny very seriously paused and thought for a minute and said, "I don't know. I've never tried." And <laughs> I just believe he thought he could do anything. Well, he could. He could fly a jet plane and cook Chinese food and. and okay, dance. I'm I'm going to sort of put you on the spot, but not really because it's in your book. So uh, <laughs> I'm not really talking out of school. Talk about a night that. Danny Kay invited you to dinner. <laughs> dinner at Danny's, yes. <laughs> well, it, this was, I think it was during the first or second season of the show. And at that time, Earl Brown was the choral director and Billy Barnes, who wrote uh, some wonderful uh, um, Something Cool and uh, um, Little Girl Blue and lots of great songs. We would all end up going over to the place across the street, the farmer's farmer's daughter motel had a big bar and restaurant so we got to know each other pretty well 
And at one point, Danny invited, and he had two assistants, two young ladies that were from the South somewhere, each of them, or one was maybe British, I don't remember. But he would he could easily intimidate them and embarrass them, and he loved to do that. And then other times he was very sweet and kind to them. So he invited myself and these two gals and Earl Brown and Michelle Legrand, who was the guest that week, the special guest, to dinner at his house after a rehearsal. And I was excited and nervous and scared to death. I'd never been in a celebrity's home. So Earl said, well, you, I'll, I'll drive and we'll go up together. So we got up to his house, which was in a beautiful uh, side street up off of Benedict Canyon in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills. And we went in and they, uh, somebody met us at the door and then kind of disappeared for the evening. And Danny took us into the area where he cooked, which was like behind a little bar set up. And he cooked some wonderful Chinese food. And I think I was a little disappointed because I thought we were going to be at a at a dining table with Crystal and everything. But we sat at the bar. And he cooked, and it was it was fun. It was like kind of family, and uh, and we watched him, and you know admired what he was doing, and praised him. <laughs> and then okay. then after dinner, he moved. He said, "We'll go into the living room and visit." And we walked into his living room, and he was sitting with one of the ladies. Um, Earl Brown was sitting with another one, and I was seated with Michelle, and we had some sort of mindless conversation for a few minutes. And then Danny just casually got up and started walking around the living room, turning off the lamps one by one. And <laughs> and I wasn't sure where all this was going. I sat with Michelle long enough that he shared that one of his goals was to write music, compose music while making love. But that didn't happen that night. Um, and and eventually I... It, we just it, it wasn't too long. We were all just sitting there in the dark. I got up and went out to the hall and picked up a phone I had noticed earlier and called a cab. In those days, that's what you did. You called a cab, not an Uber. And um, and Earl came out because he was afraid I was upset. And I said, no, no, I just I just need to get home. I, I have a babysitter, you know. And I, I was worried because I didn't want to offend Danny and I didn't want to offend Earl but it apparently it it didn't push any big buttons because I continued on the show for the next couple of years. I love that story. <laughs> you also worked on the Judy Garland show. Yes. Did you have a chance to uh, interact much with Judy Garland? No, we really didn't. And I wish we had. I mean, she was that was a difficult time in her life. But I think her whole life was. A I was going to say it was every part every of her point. life was difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at that time, you know, we we our call would be, I forgot whatever, but it would say five o'clock or seven o'clock or three o'clock, whatever. We'd we'd rehearse the numbers with the orchestra. And then the show was supposed to start at a specific time. And sometimes it didn't start till an hour later because she just didn't have it together. She'd she'd come out and she'd sing emotionally and, and beautifully and stumble through a few comments or, you know, welcome a guest. But it was apparent that she she was struggling at that time. You mentioned that you worked with the Wrecking Crew on probably a lot of hit songs in the uh, 60s and 70s. Uh, offhand, can you recall some of the songs and some of the artists that you worked with? Oh, boy. I, it, it's hard to um, 
be specific, Ken, because I they they played literally on everything. And we were working side by side with them most of the time during a, a certain spread of years, like from the mid 60s or to the early 70s. It was daily. And I looked back on some of my um, calendar books and, and we would be working six days a week from nine in the morning till maybe 10 or 11 at night. Some Sometimes it was a jingle demo and there they were. It was a record session for um, for Wayne Newton or uh, um, Sinatra. They were on some of his sessions. Uh, um, um, country artists, um, uh, trying to think who the some of the other reprise artists were in those days. Um, uh, we did Gary Puckett and the Union Gap and uh, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Mark Menzi. And they were always the band kind of and and certainly with the when it got into the monkeys period they were the monkeys but they also were so adaptable they they'd come up with this genius realization very in i think this was in the late 50s before i really started to work i didn't do my first uh i I did some demo sessions in the in like 59 and 60 at gold star but um i didn't really begin to work in the business till 61 and they were, they would play on films. They, they realized in the fifties that because they were all brilliant jazz musicians and well trained, they could do that. But they could also do the one four five one chord progress progression that you needed for just a rock and roll song. And they realized there was a lot of money to be made, and they started to, you know, seek out music or work in that area of music, and they were hugely successful. And the personnel changed a bit. You know, there were probably 10 musicians that were at some time or another part of the wrecking crew. They, they If one was couldn't make it, a different guy came in. But there was it was a very small core of players. So do you drive around and you hear a song and like Sugar Sugar or something and you go, oh, God, yeah. Oh, man, that's me. I'm on that thing. I wish I had sung on Sugar Sugar. I, I, <laughs> I got to be very good. Luckily, I got to know uh, Andy Kim and wrote uh, for a short period of time with him. Um, but I did not sing on that record. But yeah, once in a while. And, and you know what's funny, Ken, over the years, I hear records and, and now I can't remember whether I sung on them or if I just loved hearing them over and over in that period of time. It's it's a strange um familiarity that you you really can't pin specifically well i guess you've sung on so many things that uh yeah you're driving around in the car and all of a sudden there's a bank commercial and you go oh god there i am i remember that in those days yeah i get residuals on some of those things on any of the songs or any of the, the commercials no the the commercials and the uh radio ids and stuff were were just they, they were recorded. They were usable for a certain period of time, and I, I think probably in, into in, in infinity. But um, the records, no. Again, we we were part of the background. We weren't connected in that way. Although there is a there's a uh, a contract under AFTRA and now SAG AFTRA where if a record hurts hits a certain number of thousands of sales, there's like a little. Uh, payment that's triggered to the singers but with streaming i doubt that that ever happens these days you mentioned uh, i was gonna say you mentioned in your book that glenn campbell was Mm -hmm. one of the members of the wrecking crew that he was a great guitarist but 
you said, and I didn't know this, that he really didn't know how to read music, that someone would just play the part for him and he would have it down. That's right. right. Yes, he would. He, Danny Tedesco, uh, uh, Danny, uh, I'm sorry, Tommy Tedesco would um, would play his line for him and he'd have it. And he had and sometimes he'd come up with something that was better than what the arranger had written. And he'd play that eventually, you know, but he was he was amazing. Um, and just a, I had a quick, great ear and really skilled with the guitar. And he was a wonderful player. And I think I also put in my book that it got they usually were seated in the studios before we arrived because they had to set up their instruments and everything so we'd walk in and go to our vocal booth and he would play sally was a good old gal on his guitar sing (laughs) (laughs) have any idea at the time that like you know this good looking guy and he sort of (laughs) sings uh you know I, i bet you this guy could go out and have his own career well, I think because we knew him so so uh, deeply as just one of the guys, it was a big surprise the first time I heard his record. But it but it wasn't surprising, you know. Once we realized he'd had that opportunity, of course he was brilliant. And yeah, is it tough when you're singing background for some pop singer, and you're going, Jesus Christ, how does this girl have a career? <laughs> this girl can't hit a fucking note and I'm sitting here in the background when I have laryngitis I sing better than this person that's funny um I'm trying to think um you know well first of all I I haven't really done I think the only record background that I have done in the last five or ten years maybe was for Michael Buble and that we were oh, and he can sing he can sing yeah but um uh, I, I can, I can remember, well, I remember sessions where things went badly, but it was more because of the personality of the artist than because of how she was singing or he was singing. Right. Um, or you're, you're looking at the, the music and you're going, Jesus, this is idiotic. <laughs> what? <laughs> what is this? What does this even mean? What am I singing here? Okay. All right. The check is going to clear, so yeah. so that's fine. Okay, that is part one of my two-part interview with Sally Stevens. Again, her book is called I Sang That, and it's available wherever books are sold, which means Amazon. Coming up in part two, she talks about uh, touring and writing with Burt Bacharach. She talks about uh, Karen Carpenter. She's got a great Steven Spielberg story dealing with uh, John Williams, Steven Sondheim, Danny Elfman. We get into The Simpsons. Uh, Also the fact that, as I mentioned at the beginning, she was the choral director of the Oscars for 20 years. So a lot of interesting stuff. Cool names. Great dish. Sally Stevens, part two, coming up next week. And for now, our thanks as always to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to Bruce and Jason Miller, and to Jonathan Wolfert. If you want to email me, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I appreciate when you send me questions. And uh, you can follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where you can check out my cartoons, including the ones that were uh, published in The New Yorker. Okay, part two, coming up next week with Sally Stevens. She does not sing on this next jingle, though, 
but she sings on everything else. Hollywood and the Vine.